Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A roast as dark as the night. Perfect for fueling the cryptid research and mad ravings required for your podcasting. Don't mind the red eyes. He's just trying to warn you of the bridge. The bridge. Finally, from the caffeine-addled brains of spring Jack Coffee and last podcast on the left, we bring you Mothman's Red Eye Blend. Yes, delicious Panama beans. Go to lastpodcastmerch.com to order yours today. <laughs> Hello, everybody. It is I, a program named Tron, and I am the perfect man stuck in a machine. Not man at all. Pew, pew, pew. Look at my crazy discs. Ooh, you got to dodge them. You got to dodge them. It's crazy. Oh, now I'm riding a motorcycle. Meow, meow, meow. Computers are cool, kids. Computers are real cool. Well, well, that's just like your opinion, man. I'm Jeff Bridges, (laughs) and uh, this is my movie now. I know the movie's named Tron. What? And you're like the hero or whatever, but like party hardy, my dude. Like, who cares? (laughs) Relax. Crack a beer. Touch it. Titty, why not? It's it's me, Jeff Bridges. I play uh, J- uh, Kevin Flynn. I'm the real star of the movie. You don't even remember that Tron was a character. Look, just because my personality is akin to office supplies doesn't mean <laughs> that we can't center an entire film around me. I mean, please, come on. I'm I'm perfect. Nobody I'm perfect. cares. You weren't even in the move in the sequel movie. You were just kind of like implied. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, then yeah. at the last minute, it kind of feels like your presence in. It was kind of like people who made the sequel forgot that the franchise is named yeah, after you. Originally, my character was to be called Workaround, and they renamed <laughs> it to Tron. Go on. <laughs> Rinsler, guys. Everyone's favorite character, Rinsler from Tron oh Legacy. Oh, my God. And today we're here to talk about Tron. Tron, the sci-fi film written and directed by Steven Lisberger, released in 1982, starring Jeff Bridges. Who plays a computer programmer gets tra- computer programmer who gets transported inside the software of a computer and must work with the programs there in order to escape. Back in again, 1982, which leads to some very interesting results when it comes to this film. Now, let's get into the gush. I mean, Jake's whole deal is like he's whatever about it. But wait, I whoa, 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 Jake's whole deal. You- 
fucking rat selling me, <laughs> pushing me under the That's bus. Right. The bus barely started, and you're just cramming my head under the tires. I'm the rat king, baby. You better turn into Michelangelo or Donatello real fast, because I'm the rat king. All right, all right, okay, I'm just gonna, okay. Obviously, the movie is a visual feast, a uh, once-in-a-lifetime accomplishment, technically, in terms of uh, practical and digital effects, uh, an unheard-of workflow that will never be replicated as long as we live. Uh, Such a visual standout and insane design aesthetic that it, like, implanted itself onto an entire generation. It's its own aesthetic within itself, But the movie, Holden, the movie, there's a reason why it's a cult classic. And honestly, the phrase cult classic gets thrown around a lot because something as popular as like Ghostbusters or Back to the Future is referred to can be referred to as a cult classic when it is, in fact, a mainstream, super popular hit cult the word well, cult. Well, I will say this, though. Uh, right before we recorded this, uh, Jake referred to it as a dolt classic, a film <laughs> made purely for the Lies. Dolt. Just flat out slandering me for <laughs> no you reason. you called our audience complete fools. You said all the people who listen to our show, oh, they should be imprisoned, jailed for their There taste. are tens of thousands <laughs> of people that will believe you as you blatantly lie to me and lie to them. <laughs> Um, I'm just never saying. run against me on the political stage is all I'm getting to with this, uh, Jake Young, because I will, I will uh, make up things and just force you to deny, deny, deny. Uh, but I will say this about my personal experience with Tron, um, and I do think that it really does, you know, it's a, dr- it's a drug-induced mm-hmm. Per, you know, personal connection. I'm, I'm not going to lie, dudes, all right? I was hanging with my bros. I'm pretty sure it was me and Kissel in our old apartment in Brooklyn. I don't know how we ended up with this. Maybe it was on Maybe it was on Netflix at the time or something. I'm not sure, but we decided to sit down and watch a little movie called Tron. Never had seen it before. Always been interested in it. Um, the barcade in our neighborhood in Brooklyn had that weird-ass Tron arcade game that we'll talk about in a little while as well. But other than that, just always just saw the movie poster and was like, I knew it was a nerd ass movie for nerds. But like, besides that, wasn't really sure. And um, had it, you know, a cocktail, a menagerie of uh, weed supplements and uh, <laughs> marijuanic delights. Uh, but I think just that too. I don't know if we did the mushroom ice cream or anything like that, as was our ways. Uh, I, I believe it was just that. But either way, I just remember exactly that, what you said, visual feast. If you're just so baked out, you're like, and I was just like, whoa, this looks crazy. And just like totally got sucked into just the visuals. I mean, I don't remember being all that confused by the plot. I mean, it was just kind of like, all right, he's stuck in there. He's got to get out of it. You know, I don't know, whatever. He's kind of, he's figuring it out. He's working his way around it. But I just remember really being fascinated with, all the stuff, the light cycle sequence, the, um, God, what do they call them? The fucking Frisbee. <laughs> the fight. identity discs, Holden. They're called identity <laughs> discs. In the uh, sequels, uh, they look like actual cool cybernetic weapons. In the original movie, they are literally <laughs> just Frisbees that are painted with shark. But still, even today, I'd never seen anything like that before and will never see anything since because the process to get the visual effect that the look of that film was so crazy. And I'm so glad I got to learn about it because you know, it it was just, it's a wild, wild ride of why literally nothing else ever what did or will ever be look like that movie ever again is, 
kind of amazing. And at the same time, I totally get uh, Jake's mini criticisms. Take it away. All right. I'm just saying right <laughs> off the bat, the entire like crux of the movie is that Jeff Bridges was a hotshot video game developer. That's amazing. I love the 80s arcade scene, too. I'm such a sucker for that time in arcade culture. So oh, I, like, yeah, yeah. Back when arcades were like caked that. with like cigarette smoke and yes. like Billy beer cans. They were bad kid clubs. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was yeah. awesome. But the whole movie, like the idea is his company that used to make video games now makes uh, just business software and government databases, and it's all run by an evil master control program. And incidentally, on the side, in the same company, they also have a magic laser that can digitize organic matter into uh, computer bits <laughs> information completely. Mm-hmm. That, but that's not what they really do. That miracle <laughs> machine that would violate all known laws of metaphysical reality is just a weird side thing that he just only gets in the computer because he happens to be sitting directly down the barrel of the death laser. Uh, he gets transported there, and you learn that the the real hero of the movie is this guy named Tron who happens to look like his best friend, Alan, who is uh, everybody looks like their own best friend because in this world, computer people, uh, if you use the computer, there's a little person of you also okay, in the computer. Okay. I actually found the reason for that in the research. Would you like to know the reason why they, or how they, I mean, it's still pretty abstract, but how they got to that? No, I understand the reason. They just okay. don't explain it correctly. Right, right. So so the the whole idea behind that, or at least how they explain away that, that there's a physical counterpart to you in the machine, is that like, it's under the premise that, you know, we're entering all of our personal identity information into the computer, um, like our social security number and our medical history history and everything gets entered into it so that is how a program version of you exists it's still but then in the movie they're like who are you and he's like i'm ram i'm an email client and so what the fuck does that mean does that mean that guy only uses email what the fuck is happening um and after all this rigmarole where there's just a ton of like uh cool sequences the mini games they have to do the video game warriors the recognizers the the all the religious imagery where the master control program represents like the sublimation of self to a totalitarian religion. Um, Finally, after all that rigmarole is done, Jeff Bridges gets what he came into the computer for, which is proof that one of the games he developed uh, was like uh, stolen from him. And all he gets is a dot matrix printout that just says, Kevin made this game as if that's anything you can just you could have just typed out Kevin made the game on your own printer. It doesn't mean anything. What I'm saying is the movie has very weird pacing. The movie uh, kind of goes on these weird tangents where they're just kind of like philosophizing and nothing much happens in between all the little uh, cool computer segments. There's like something fundamentally lacking as a screenplay. But the visuals are so strong and the ideas that it hints at, which we'll learn, actually were kind of developed fully in a way that would have made it, I think, an all-time classic, uh, just imprinted onto a very specific generation of computer nerds. And everybody who the movie didn't resonate with, at the very least, they remember it. So they thought it was this prime classic franchise, Disney, I'm saying, because it was created during, we'll talk about, a very desperate uh, era in Disney's history. 
So when it was time to do this full media 2010 reboot, requel, whatever you want to call it, extended universe thing, they were like, all right, everybody, it's Tron again. And for the most part, the world was like, eh. <laughs> like the loyalists, the, in, and then in an ironic twist of fate, the Tron legacy kids also became rabid fans in a very insular kind of secretive, select, small group. You mean Daft Punk fans? Yes, they also became very, very big fans of uh, Tron through that. A lot of times we cover a franchise and it's beloved and well-known and everybody can quote every little bit of it. Tron is a movie that is like a weird secret handshake. Yeah. There's a reason why, uh, you know, Tron guy picked Tron to be his awkward a homemade costume back in the early 2000s internet. Like it is this very abstract, obscure, weird little movie that just happened to uh, be made by all, by almost by accident, I would say. And this, and the visuals are incredible. The aesthetic is incredible. The design is incredible, but except for a few like instances I really feel like it's it's almost a tragedy because it could have been so much more. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like uh, it's just such a cool, unique, fascinating thing to me. I love just how weird it is and how weird it looks and what it really meant for the future of CGI, uh, what it meant for the future of Walt Disney as, uh, of course, they would continue to pursue feats in computer-generated computer graphics uh, effects. And so, I don't know. I I just think it's this amazing stepping stone and this incredibly audacious project Mm -hmm. by a group of people that just were willing to really shoot the moon and perfectly timed for Disney to do this when they were just... I love a scrappy Walt Disney. Mm. It's so rare, especially now more than ever. Like, that was back when they were like, man, we got to try anything Mm -hmm. and really see what sticks. But there's got to be a reason. There's a reason why culturally it has just remained in the zeitgeist. I mean, other than, yes... They they brought it back, you know, for the sequel. But that, they brought it back for a sequel because so many people were inspired by this film. So many other filmmakers were inspired by this film. Daft Punk were inspired by this film. This film also, um, the, the first movie, the the soundtrack that we'll get into it was done by a person who was uh, directly connected to the creation of the Moog synthesizer. Mm-hmm. Which So there's just all this really cool like advent of technology stuff embedded in the making of this movie that is so interesting. And I will totally agree with you that it is just like, it's a weird one. Same with the arcade game. It's like the same kind of thing. It's like, it's like really weird. And I'm, it's not like my favorite thing, but I'm so happy it exists. And I love that Tron exists, the film. And um, I really was surprised to see how much I felt like it held up compared to a lot of other films that would come after it. I'm looking at you, Lawnmower Man, (laughs) that would try to do like being in the computer graphic kind of stuff. And it just never felt as good to me as actually what they did with Tron. And I think it's because of the simplicity of the approach Mm -hmm. And I love that also for Tron Legacy because they were able to do a lot of really cool stuff stylistically with architecture and design in that same vein of like, let's keep these 
these these uh, structures and these um, these tanks and these motorcycles and everything. Let's keep them like very very simple in 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 terms of execution of design, and yet like look really cool and unique and fascinating. And so I just loved it. I also I'm just such a sucker for like fascination with the early technology for like the promise of what could be. Mm. There's a lot of the research I did is a lot of you know, people speculating what computers are going to be. I mean, one of the people they worked closely with when coming up with the script and everything, and a lot of this stuff would end up getting dropped, and we'll talk about that, has a lot to do with the suits over at Disney getting involved, um, you know, was directly responsible for, like, the personal computer. I mean, it, it's it's kind of amazing, the just the hands that were on this project at different points in times, you know? And and even with Tron Legacy, there's just some really cool DNA there. And, you know, I think it's one of my favorite things about it is, like, Daft Punk probably wouldn't exist, might not exist at least, without Tron. Like, that, you know, that, that had such a huge influence on their look, on their sound, you know? I mean, synthesizers in general uh, becoming popularized, you know? Uh, Tron helped do that a bit. So I don't know. It's just this cool like relic. It's just this fascinating thing. And I love, love, love like old, like I said, old 80s movies in an arcade, like like the way technology or like the future felt mm-hmm. in the 80s was so exciting and cool. And like when I watch a movie like this, I get transported to like the promise of what it's going to be. And then we got to see it and we got to see it change and evolve and you know, become this like in great ways and in horrific ways become, you know, I mean, we have the whole world in our pocket now. Right. And I mean, this is that they, that was like, so not even a concept back then, you know? And, uh, uh, so I just love, love, love to go back and like relive that time. You know, I've still always wanted to do like the wizard for this show. I don't know if there's enough there for that, that, the video game movie mm-hmm. where they first premiere Super Mario 3. And, you know, just because the excitement around video games, the excitement around what computer programming and what all that stuff would actually end up being is just so fucking cool. So anyway, I think we got to get into it. Let's get into it. Oh, my God. It's Tron. Our story begins, as most great things do, with a weird, drugged out, frazzled, yet incredibly driven hippie <laughs> named Steven Lisberger. And yeah, why does Steven Lisberger always the name that we say at the beginning of every single one of our stories? I mean, it's so bizarre. It doesn't matter what we're covering. If it's a manga, if it's, you know, uh, Hunter Hunter. I mean, it, it, all right, it's maybe just... it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but. <laughs> Steven Lisberger, I feel like, is the definition of an outsider filmmaker. Yes, for sure. And, uh, you know, I will say our stories most usually begin with a lot of advertising work. Mm. And that will also definitely uh, encapsulate the early stages of Lisberger Studios, which would go on to be the kind of the mastermind machine behind Tron. Steven Lisberger... Definitely also, man after my own heart, you could tell he was such like a fucking stoner <laughs> animator dude. Because he was talking about his first project, but he was like, it was pre- a cosmic cartoon, which we're about to talk about. He was like, it was pretty far out stuff. You know what I'm saying? There's a really fun uh, making of Tron, by the way. You can see it on uh, YouTube. It's like an hour and a half long of just like, if you just want to live in 
how they crafted Tron, look at a lot of storyboards, all that good stuff. And, and you know, we're going to relate a lot, a decent amount of that information to you today, but still, it's, it's a good watch. Steven Lisberger was born in New York City in the early 50s. He grew up in Pennsylvania. He went to college at Tufts University. And while there, he and five buddies formed Lisberger Studios. And by formed, I mean smoked so much just dog shit weed until they just found themselves uh, being uh, animators for hire. Their first big project was called Cosmic Cartoon. Did you get a chance to look at it, Jake? It's a lot of fun. It's just a there. couple of clips. I saw a lot of rotoscoping, a lot of like far out spacey animation. It is definitely a trippy endeavor. Yeah, you should probably listen to some Pink Floyd while you watch it or uh, in Agata DeVita or something like that. I mean, it definitely, it's just, it's a lot of layering. It's a lot of motion, not a lot of story per se, more just a visual. Uh, I'm going to not say feast this time. I'm going to say uh, delicate, uh, deli counter tray. Mm. Uh, and it won them an award at their school. Um, and they, yeah, Lisberger did a lot of the matte painting, figure rotoscoping, and airbrush painting for it. After that, Lisberger did get a lot of direction work on commercials, title sequence, and segments for kids' shows. It does seem like Lisberger, which I think is a challenge for a lot of young animators, was pretty good at selling his yes. deal. Uh, I think the most... Uh the most uh, exemplary example of that is uh, at one point, uh, one of his animators by the name of John Norton uh, drew this cool warrior guy, yeah. kind of this like cybernetic, muscly dude uh, with like a helm and shoulder pads. And he was throwing these like galaxy swirl discs, like kind of. Yeah, sub- get this. He was throwing discs. <laughs> Like some kind of electronic wizard. And uh, Lisberger was so enamored with this. And his favorite uh, technique was uh, something called backlight animation, where uh, instead of just painted cells in front of the camera that was, you know, animated frame by frame, the uh, cells had uh, basically holes cut out of them or just like clear sections that a colored backlight from underneath could like shine light directly into the camera and create this neon lasery effect. And so as a proof of concept, they created this warrior test animation. It's only 30 seconds long, but uh, internally the character's name became Tron. And Tron does not look uh, very much like the uh, characters you're familiar with, but uh, he's like got like muscly legs. He's like kind of a beefcake. There's all these like kind of vector style drawings and satellites bouncing around. He then throws these two cool discs and it's all done with this very vibrant backlit animation style so that everything is sparkling and shining and like looks really cool. Um, Immediately, Lisberger starts selling the test footage to rock to a rock radio station as kind of the WCOZ rock radio. Uh, he then sells the same animation to other rock stations around the country, making sure that he doesn't sell it twice to anybody in the same market so that he can maximize the profits off. Ah, uh, radio. Yeah, they uh, get some money that way. Another big early deal that they make uh, is with NBC, and they get these two hour-long specials 
bought by them in 1978, and they were supposed to be compared to the 1980 Winter and Summer Olympics. So it was going to be um, the Animal Olympics. The Animal Olympics. And what's notable about this project is just the sheer amount of incredible talent attached to it. They had Roger Allers, who uh, would go on to direct Lion King, Brad Bird, who did Iron Giant and The Incredibles. Uh, here are Iron Giant episode if you want to know about Brad Bird some more. Remember Brad Bird. He comes up later. And Bill Croyer, who would end up being one of the main animators to work on the CGI elements of Tron. Uh, but unfortunately, this kind of is a brick wall they hit uh, around this time. They they uh, end up not being able to air these specials the way they want because uh, Jimmy Carter ends up protesting, boycotting the games that that year because they were to be held in Moscow. And after the Soviet Union invaded and took control of Afghanistan, um, he... Oh, is, is this why we're covering Tron? <laughs> yes, exactly. Very timely as of the uh, t- time of this recording, if you know what's going on in world news these days. Uh, yeah, so that was like a big bummer, man, for them. And they were kind of trying to figure out what to do next. They were floundering. Well, no, they knew what they wanted to do next because Lisberger still had a, I'm going to say, massive hippie animator hard on to create a full length feature film of the Tron character and do it entirely in backlit animation. That was going to be their deal. Uh, They had moving uh, release, I'm sorry, uh, distribution negotiations to release both Animalipic specials as a feature film across Europe. That was going to give them the seed money to start producing Tron. And they were deeply, deeply invested in all this. He had moved his whole studio. He was previously working out of Boston, and he moved everybody to uh, Venice Beach, California. And he was like, this just threw the whole Olympic shenanigan, just threw a giant wrench in his heavy metal, rock and roll, cyber warrior dream. And I feel like there was a lot of this kind of outsider, independent, adult-oriented animation mm-hmm. uh, in the winds. You know, the heavy metal, uh, Ralph Bakshi was doing his thing, Fritz the Cat. Like, there was a market for this kind of outsider, independent, more adult-oriented, I'm going to say stoner-adjacent animated movies. And the entirety of the Animal Olympics fiasco completely messed this up. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva! Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
it's around this time that Lisberger becomes incredibly fascinated with the world of computing. He said, you have to bear in mind, man, that during the time, the 70s and late 70s, everybody perceived computers as the enemy. They were still mainframe. People didn't have PCs. and They didn't know it could be personalized. The only thing that was being personalized was their information, man, and it existed in a computer in that sense. I mean, and he does have a point. There's a weird tension going on between man and machine around this time. Like, the Hal is like the icon of computers uh, from 2001 Space Odyssey, and he's like the one of the scariest filmic villains ever made. Not the first time, uh, or not the only time we're going to bring up Stanley Kubrick in this uh, episode, by the way. So this is where uh, one of the biggest bombshells in my week of research kind of came out, uh-huh. which is, um, the fact is, the, I, I feel like, this is pure conjecture, but I feel like Lisberger really just wanted a cool neon Conan the Barbarian. Mm. I really think he was more uh, excited about just the vibe of the movie. Just these like gnarly dudes and lasers all flying around in the style of a Lord of the Rings like heroic epic. Uh, the character of Tron being nothing but a cool beefcake made of lasers for the longest time. And it didn't really uh, evolve until the addition of Bonnie McBird Mm. into the scene. Now, Bonnie McBird uh, worked for Universal Pictures, uh, and she hooked up with uh, Steven Lisberger and Lisberger Studios in order to develop Tron as a full-fledged screenplay. And she fell in super hard around the science, the technology, the ethics, the dynamics of the digital world in this early stage of human progress. In fact, uh, it was her idea to invite all of the production staff over to Xerox Park, which is a very famous technology lab. Uh, It's where Steve Jobs uh, got the first uh, glimpse of the computer that he would eventually create as the Macintosh. This is where uh, network computers, uh, laser printers, even something simple like uh, using a mouse to navigate a graphical user face along with windowed applications were all being developed in the 70s, years before the Macintosh uh, came around and kind of changed the game, which then led to Windows, which then led to how we interact with computers to this day. So this may be where our research differs slightly, uh, Jake, because how the way I have it, do you have a man named Alan Kay in your, so in your work? So working at Xerox Park is a man named Alan Kay, and okay. McBird was so uh, kind of delighted by how he presented the technology over there at Xerox Park that she brought him in as a consultant, and it was there, uh, and Alan Kay, again, worked at Xerox Park, uh, revolution, all these revolutionary things that I just talked about. Uh, he is often attributed as being the originator of the phrase personal computer, the PC itself. Yeah. During one of the meetings that uh, they had between Alan, Bonnie, and Steven, along with a bunch of other filmmakers uh, of the production staff, Alan talked, this is a quote from an interview with Bonnie McBird. Alan talked for close to four hours about computers, education, music, early childhood, theater, storytelling, science, psychology, learning, AI, programming, science fiction, biology, humanism, evolution, Buckminster Fuller, philosophy, neurology, aesthetics, and the future, the future, the future. Steven Lisper and I had our minds blown. On the plane on the way back from Xerox Park, I knew that we had to have a character based on Alan Kay, and I set out to write him and to hire Alan as the technical consultant on our film. 
Alan said yes, and he and I began weekly meetings about the script. As I integrated what he taught me about computers uh, and how they really work and the future of the internet and personal computing, uh, the script began to take hold and I incorporated him into the character of Alan, a.k.a. Tron. And they would actually also fall in love and get married, which is a very sweet part of the story. I have a great quote from Lisberger here from an interview that just got me just got me all excited. I'll drop the stoner voice for this. We first started doing research on CG and video games, and then we started to meet the people who were dedicated to personal computers or computer graphics. That was really exciting, and that there was a face to the technology. These people were cutting edge. They were pioneers that inspired the story about those people working in that world. And those people, at the time, had an attitude that their goal was to put technology into the hands of everyone. There was very much a sense that IBM was Big Brother, but we didn't know it at the time. Xerox Park was where all the research was being done. We visited that center. We didn't know that Bill Gates was writing the ultimate code to implant into the IBM system, which was then going to give birth to the PC, or at least make the PC possible. So at the end of Tron, when all those towers light up in the final scene, that's really what it's about. We were so idealistic. We thought that not only could the negative aspects of the technology be overcome, but that this was going to be a brave new world. And once everyone got plugged in, it would be the level of idealism needed to accomplish it. Technology, we felt, was going Going to be infinite, which is really exciting stuff, you know, and now, of course, we know this to be true, but back then we did not. I mean, computers were this thing that uh, existed in some crazy lab that took up an entire room. They weren't something that anyone, the, the layman, I, I guess you could say, thought ever thought that they would get their hands on at any point, so it was just such a cool time to be interested in this kind of stuff and and it and it also did come from you know his early interest came from seeing pong uh atari released pong in 1972 he got to see that he he, he and and funnily enough uh which is the last thing i would do think about like people living in that uh <laughs> and uh also at the time he saw a um a demo uh from this computer firm called magi which stands for mathematical applications group and Incorporated. It was funded back in 1966 to evaluate nuclear radiation exposure, leading to them creating computer simulations in the early 70s using a software called Synthavision, which is one of the first systems to implement a, implement a ray tracing algorithmic approach to hidden surface removal and rendering images. And if your eyes glazed over just now, you know what it was like to research this topic this week. Uh, then they realized they could use this in the entertainment field, and that's how they uh, ended up creating the world's first CGI advertising for IBM that's a Magi did and Lisberger sees this and is like we could we could definitely incorporate this into some sort of uh, feature film I, I, this is where I'm getting shady this is where this is where I'm going off the rails this okay, is where I'm like opening shady. myself up to some to some stuff Lisberger is a fascinating guy he accomplished the impossible in getting this movie made he was the driving force from beginning to end to like make it and finished film but According to, again, interviews with uh, Bonnie McBird, when asked, like, hey, you know, like, uh, was, okay, this is literally a question from an interview on a long derelict fan blog. Uh, was Steven Lisberger a geek first and a filmmaker second, or was it the all, or was it the other way around? Bonnie answers, Steven was never a geek. He was an intelligent, charming, boyish man who was a very talented animation director when I knew him. Uh, in her side of the story, Lisberger 
kind of just like had ideas for like cool segments and the animators had ideas for like fun action sequences and set pieces that they wanted to incorporate. And it was up to her to actually f- take all of this and form it into a plot. Lisberger at the meetings would kind of just uh, give like notes on the story, but it was up to her to build this Tron universe and try and make it all work into a cohesive story where what's happening in the computer relates to the real world. At one point he brought, at one point Lisberger brought in a bong that he shaped <laughs> it to look like a robot and said, we're going to live in this one day, man. And Bonnie, uh, Bonnie McBurge is like, I am trying to save all of us financially right now. Kind of. <laughs> Stuff like, uh, so here's an interesting thing. The character of Flynn, uh, Kevin Flynn, played by Jeff Bridges, was originally written for Robin Williams because yes. McBird, while working at Universal, kept an eye on the comedy store for looking for new talent. And so Flynn's kind of roguish, kind of fish out of water, wisecracking ways was incorporated specifically for Robin Williams. This uh, aspect of the character, I mean, uh, according to an interview with her, uh, Flynn w- originally was going to be more of a wild man, originally a pizza delivery boy with a touch of ADD and a slightly wackier quality. For the record, I love Jeff Bridges in the role. And uh, later, because I've read every draft of the film, I noticed that he ad-libbed back some of the humor I was going for originally, but was excised in later drafts by other writers. Mm-hmm. The character of Tron made way more sense, whereas uh, in the movie, he's just kind of like, for some reason, I'm the cool Frisbee guy who wants to, who's the only one that knows that freedom is good and the users are gods. Uh, he's actually a video game character that has AI handwritten into him by Alan. And the two have like this whole relationship and like the friendship between the users and him is more intimate. There's like all this characterization and humanity, even like incorporated in McBird's work and all of the uh, kind of techno futurism just gets washed away in the final product where uh, I think she attributes this to Lisberger, just the idea that like, Business bad, authority bad, religion bad is the key things that come up with it. And the computers are just there to uh, influence the image. I'd probably trust her more than anyone else. But I will also say a lot of that from what I saw was also attributed to the suits over at Walt Disney Productions. Um, In 1980, Lisberger and crew take their project to them. They were at the time willing to take more risks. Uh, They were just at a really weird spot. They were considered old fashioned essentially at this point. And they were trying to figure out like, what is going to bring the kids back into our world? Around and this so, time, uh, Disney's live action output was mostly Herbie the Love Bug sequels. Yes. And a little movie called Star Wars just came in and rocked kids' worlds and made all the money that Disney was like, fuck, we need a Star Wars. And video games are really hot in arcades at the time. And like they're noticing that and not able to figure out what the hell to do with that. So vice president at Disney at the time, Tom Willett. Viewed the test footage brought in by Lisberger and liked it enough to convince the higher-ups to take a chance in it. Well, at least a small chance. They were completely convinced to hand over the $10 million to a first-time director, so they financed a test reel. And the reel involved a guy... The, the the guy throwing the flying disc with combined with live-action footage with black-lit animation and CGI. Lisberger said... 
People used to tell the Wright brothers that it was going to be impossible to fly because the human mind couldn't deal with going faster than 30 or 40 miles an hour. Intentionally, that was the quest, to try and get the best group of people together, the most talented bunch of people in one category, and have everybody push the envelope together. It was sort of like an ensemble, like a band. And then out of that came something bigger than any of us had anticipated, because when the first frames came back, we were all pretty much blown away. The fact is that no movie will ever be made the way that Tron was made. As technical as it was, there was an incredible amount of hand art. We were still dealing with paint and plastic and film, and those things were all trying to meld with what the look of cyber was at the time. And so the Disney execs see this initial product, and they're incredibly impressed. And that is when they finally agree to back the film. However, this is when, apparently, they request extensive rewrites, which is uh, also maybe around the time McBird's uh, script gets totally mutilated. And uh, all new storyboards as well. And the difference, though, in this scenario between like a live-action, normal live-action film storyboards and this film storyboards, this film was storyboarded because it was a Lisberger joint like an animation film. Mm-hmm. Therefore, every single shot Every single bit of movement was very specifically storyboarded, and that is not the normal way a live-action film is usually storyboarded, and it took a lot of time uh, to completely redo all of that. Well, uh, this is where, now that they have Disney's backing, Lisberger has an unbelievable dream team of influential artists and effects wizards at his back, helping to kind of make all this a reality. Uh, Richard Taylor is a legendary VFX super uh, VFX supervisor who uh, kind of parallel to Lisberger was also completely enamored with the backlit animation technique. Uh, he did a bunch of legendary commercials for seven up. Uh, he helped invent and create uh, the seven up spot. He was a uh, classically trained animator who had a, a, a background in VFX. Uh, Harrison Ellenshaw was a matte painter. And he worked on compositions and sets for um, Star Wars. And he was like Disney's guy on the inside. He was able to kind of translate from Lisberger to the suits, like what they were actually doing and why it was going to work. Uh, on the design team, they tapped two of the most legendary creators in sci-fi history. <laughs> Sid Mead, who did a lot of the designs for the light bikes and the recognizer machines and a lot of the sets. And John Mobius Gerard. Uh, yeah. Yet again, we're bringing up Mobius. We, if you haven't heard, we have brought up Mobius so many times. He's a part of every cool thing ever, especially back in this time period. Real quick about Sid Mead. He was an industrial designer that started out at the Ford Motor Company before forming his own company, doing design work for all sorts of stu- uh, people. It led also to film work such as Star Trek The Motion Picture, Blade Runner, Short Circuit, Aliens, and then fucking Mobius. Uh, I mean, you know, we've talked about it. The French artist, known for his incredible futuristic cityscapes and his anti-hero Western comic Blueberry, who went on to collaborate on a ton of incredible films. Again, Alien, The Fifth, the fifth Element, which is love, mind you, uh, and uh, just all sorts of great stuff. He's also one of the most uh, beloved uh, comic book creators of all time. Like, one of the most... Uh, just in terms of just fundamental storytelling chops, competent, accomplished comic book artists of all time. And at one point during the production, Mobius himself ended up re-storyboarding the whole thing and Lisberger ended up using them. Oh, wow. And so a ton of these shots, these like amazing compositions are taken directly from a Mobius page hand drawn by him. So like 
the it's just so much goddamn talent ready to make this thing a reality. And so they do. Also, there's Peter Lloyd, uh, who designed the environments. He was a freelance illustrator who specialized in digital artwork, did a bunch of ad stuff for the NFL and Playboy, among other clients, before breaking into films with this project. And even though they all have these different specialties and they're all focusing on different things, they all end up really just collaborating on every different uh, section of this, every every different element of this film. And that that is why it does have a cohesiveness, I feel feel like as much as it is just like all over the place in terms of well it's like when you look at the light cycles and you realize it's Sid Mead you're like oh that makes sense right. and when you look at like uh oh I forgot the character's name I believe he's called Dumont in the movie but like it's big butt Tommy the guy with yeah, the penis yeah, yeah, helmet the guy with the penis. and the robes <laughs> you're just like what the fuck is that? And then you find out, oh, Mo- oh, that's a Mobius guy. Yep, that's a Mobius guy. Now let's talk a little bit about the CGI. First of all, common misconception. I think, what is there about? There's about 15 to 20 minutes of computer animation in this entire picture. It is so mostly done by hand. And we'll talk about the backlit animation some more in just a second. But four computer graphics firms were pulled in to create the CGI effects for Tron. They were Information International Inc., Robert Abel and Associations, Magi, which I mentioned earlier, uh, and Digital Effects. Information International Inc. was also uh, known as Triple I. They had the fastest PDP-10 in the world. This is a 36-bit computer. Again, love love to look up images of this stuff. And I mean, I tried to look in on into what the PDP-10 specifically did that was so great. It, and my eyes rolled out into the back of my head trying to like read this computer language. But it was definitely uh, one of those, this thing takes up <laughs> a hallway. Like this fucking thing to probably do less than what an NES does. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So this is one of my favorite things about the digital effects in this movie is that we are so like pr- like primordial in the creation of computer animation that each individual there wasn't any like standard animation software. Each one of these studios used their own proprietary software and techniques to render and create these pictures totally to the point where they had to like mix and match who did which shot based on how they created these uh, these shots to begin with. Uh, Magi SynthVision, for example, created all of their uh, computer imagery using uh, what are called primitives, spheres, cones, rect- uh, cubes, and everything they made, such as the light cycles and the recognizer ships, are all just assembled from shapes. Uh, for the light cycles, you know, you take a sphere, you put a little uh, sphere inside to create a hole in the middle. You just add and subtract all these little different parts. And that's how you get that uh, kind of smooth, clean, uh, ge- geometric uh, shape going. Meanwhile, Triple I used a uh, vertex animation technique where the characters or I'm sorry, objects were drawn on a 2D like just pen and paper and then individual points were taken and those uh, points are saved, you then take another picture of the same object from a different angle, input those points, and the computer kind of creates this polygonal, kind of more traditional 3D object. Uh, Stuff like the solar sail, stuff like uh, a lot of the more intricate stuff, the uh, master control program and his like little castle were all done by Triple I. So they had to work around all these limitations, all these workflows, to get the shots that they required because literally 
there wasn't like there was no Maya. There was no unity. There was no unreal. Like everybody in the world who made cool floating computer images had to figure it out on their own. Yeah, another great example. Digital Effects is one of the first companies to produce flying logos, <laughs> like ever. Uh, one big contribution from Magi was this thing called Perlin Noise. This is an algorithm created by Ken Perlin, which he crafted after being frustrated with the machine-like look of CGI at the time, and he just wanted to give this a slightly more natural look. Look up, if you're curious, just look up an image of Perlin Noise, and you'll see what I'm talking about, but it's just an algorithm that created a visual effect that was so novel at the time, it actually ended up with him receiving an Academy Award for Technical Achievement. Uh, which is, uh, I guess, a good time to bring up the thing that you may have heard of before, which is that um, this whole project was so ahead of its time, the Academy didn't really quite know what to do with it. Lisberger said, We were so idealistic, we thought that not only could the negative aspects of the technology be overcome, but that there was going to be a brave new world. And once everybody got plugged in, it would be the level of idealism needed to accomplish it. Technology, we felt, was going to be infinite. Somewhere down the line, technology became corrupted. In fact, it was very difficult to get the film companies to be interested in computers and CG. There is that great story that after we did Tron, that year, we weren't even nominated for an Academy Award for Special Effects. When we made an inquiry as to why that might be, they said, well, we didn't nominate you because you cheated. You used computers. Yeah. It was literally a different world back then. And, and, and I mean, all, all of this, I think, points towards that. It's unbelievable, the effort. And that's what, again, why I'm going to say to all the people that I'm sure will send me nice messages and will send Jake Young, jakeyoung at AOL.com, uh, forward slash hotmail.gov, uh, the mean messages from this episode. For once, your weird instinct to lie about everything has saved me. Thank God. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, that, uh, uh, is what I love so much about this whole project, especially now that I know all of this information that it is just like the cutting, uh, you say cutting edge, this was true cutting edge and something that there's no way a giant film studio would ever take a risk on something like this nowadays. I mean, it's just completely unheard of. Holden, you said that there's only 20 minutes of computer generated imagery in the entire movie, which runs at well over two hours. Uh, how did they do all the rest of the stuff? All of those live action sequences will now, because it may, gave me a headache to read about it, will be completely described to you by Jake. So, <laughs> the I'm kidding. I'll the help glowing. you with it, but it is fucking complicated. I'm just gonna say right now, this this is so crazy. You thought the CG side of this was fucking crazy. This the, is what nuts. kills me the most about this is they go through all this effort where, like, if you just wanted glowy bits on your costume, you could have just used a black light or something. It would have been fine. <laughs> it would have been fine. Really crazy, man. Like, so <laughs> in order to achieve that original, the original dream, which was a cool neon glowy warrior man. Uh, that so drove this entire project. Uh, what they did was they shot all the live action scenes in black and white on 65 millimeter film stock. They then blew up every single frame and uh, created negatives on large format film stills. They then reversed it again to get like clear portions and then backlit every single frame of animation. Now that's already a lot of work. What uh, you then have to realize is that they then did several other passes of those frames 
to get the face lighting right so that it stood out and had a better gradient than the black and white of the glow effects. They then did another pass to make sure that the eyes and the teeth were brighter and legible on screen. They then did another pass to do shadows and highlights to the point where every single live action frame that takes place in the computer world has about 12 camera passes done on it just to generate a single frame of this movie. So it's basically taking the live action footage and treating it like a stop act, stop motion picture. We uh, A very similar technique was used in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and that was insanely streamlined compared to what they had to deal with in this film. Yeah, and that, that's why they always say, like, this will never happen again. Yeah. And that is because it was so insane to pull off. Like, it, it, Kodak had to create a special kind of film for them uh, that was specific to the project. And just the amount of work, they had to redo a bunch of work they had to send it off to, uh, what was Taiwan. it? Uh, Taiwan. Taiwan to get it uh, colorized. It came back and the paint hadn't fully dried. It was all stuck together. There was a whole issue with like the way it came back and what order it came back oh, in. Uh, they had to special order the, the large format film stills from Kodak. Like literally they like had to go and custom get emulsions made That's what to make yeah. this movie. And at one point they realized that because different batches of film, just by the nature of the analog chemical organic kind of process, vary between one another, they were supposed to use only specific batches of film sequentially. And the end result of doing it out of order created these weird contrast flashes every so often in the film. If you watch the movie now, there are these weird moments where a spark will kind of just jump up and go like the computer world's malfunctioning. And that was added in post to make up for the fact that random frames in the movie would just brighten up out of nowhere and break continuity. They eventually figured out what the problem was after consulting with Kodak, but it's just one of a million headaches that had to go with this deeply involved photographic process. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... (laughs) 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Over 569 people helped with the post-production work on this film. It was just unreal. The amount, just the sheer cost and the challenge is just so insane. 300 matte paintings. I mean, just a a ridiculous undertaking. And I will say, though, at the very least, you cannot replicate it. You can say what you want about the writing, the plot, and this and that. You cannot replicate this. And I will at least also say it looks great, the acting's great, and the music's awesome. And we'll get into the music in just a second. Actually, I'm, I, I'm down to get into the music. Do you have anything else? Uh, do you have anything more you want to say before we do uh, Actor Dan Shore, who played the character Ram, uh, talked about how he was walking around downtown Hollywood and a man stopped him in the street and said, you, 
you, your goddamn nose. And he was like, what? And he was like, for the past year, I have had to create like matte uh, color masks around your fucking face. <laughs> that has been my full time job. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, all right. The, the, I loved learning about this. I thought Daft Punk was the coolest music mm. thing about uh, Tron, but actually it is Wendy Carlos. The soundtrack was done by Wendy Carlos, who studied physics and music uh, at Brown University and later at Columbia University. She worked with electronic musicians and technicians to develop the Moog synthesizer, oh. the first commercially available keyboard instrument. Oh, so she literally invented the game. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and using the Moog, she also became incredibly popular with her album Switched on Bach. Uh, this was an album of music by Johann Sebastian Bach performed on a, fully on a Moog synthesizer, which won her Grammy Awards and popularized the Moog. There's some really cool old YouTube clips of her showing off the Moog and like how it works. And it's so fascinating uh, to see just the, at the basic level how you just synthesizers are so fucking cool, man. And it's so neat. I want one now. I just want to be able to play with one. And uh, I feel like you so get many one and dials. it's in the corner. There's too many I dials. Know, it's so cool. It's like you're a bad scientist in music. I never knew this. Uh, this is where Stanley Kubrick comes up again. The This album caught the eye of Stanley Kubrick, or the ear, rather. Uh, who, who employed her skills on the scores for... If you could get, you could probably guess it, a mm. clockwork orange, right? I mean, all of those weird digitized uh, symphonic uh, stylings all all in that film, as well as those t that terrifying weird vibe you get from The Shining with that soundtrack as well. Um, and then that was actually before she did Tron. Another interesting tidbit as well is that uh, Wendy Carlos um, raised public awareness of transgender issues since she publicly announced in 1979 that she had been living as a woman since uh, 1968, having undergone sex, reass sex reassignment surgery in 1972. Wendy Carlos is a fucking yes. badass. And, uh, my shout outs to you, my hats off. So cool. And you can, again, see really cool old school footage of her showing off the Moog. I highly recommend it. And I just love seeing like science and music combine like that. And how it started with her studying physics and music at Brown University. Just such a dope thing. For Tron, she used both the Moog synthesizer as well as Krumar's GDS digital synthesizer, which brought some newer synthesizer effects to the work. Again, I tried to study what those were, and I literally got a headache. It had something to do with wave manipulation. <laughs> I was like, I can't do this anymore. There was a lot of Holden, like really you know about the square waves and the sawtooths and the <laughs> logarithms. You know, sine, sine waves, baby. It's all sine it's like waves. A, I want to bring y'all the knowledge so badly, and it's just so difficult to do that um, when <laughs> when I'm a dumb dumb. Uh, there are also a couple of non-electronic pieces. There's the London Philharmonic Orchestra, as well as the tracks 1990s theme and Only Solutions, which were done by the band Journey. Uh, so Tron, uh, this uh, amazing story here about the release. So we talked about how it's a cult classic. Mm -hmm. Big part of that, though, Jake, it could have had a fairer shot had it not come out during the summer of 1982. If many people know that is a legendary summer what, for what uh, came out American in the film. summer of 1982. Can't be that Just, impressive. 
E.T., Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Blade Runner, and Poltergeist. And the funny thing, too, is like it's a lot of like some of the most groundbreaking, incredible sci-fi mm. film as well, not you know, to, to for it to compete with. Um, and the whole reason why it was a dick-measuring contest, dude, it's so funny. And I also can't believe we're bringing in Don Bluth. So uh, Disney board chairman at the time, Card Walker, found out Don Bluth was releasing his film, The Secret of Nim, in July. And being petty and like trying to like shut him out of the business, he decided he wanted to try and rain on Blue's Parade by getting Tron out early. So instead of Christmas, they also released it that fateful summer. So it gets totally lost in the shuffle. Unbelievable blunder on Disney's part. And so, yeah, that it, you know, it got pretty good, pretty solid craze, praise from critics. You know, I think the biggest criticism, which I, I could agree with, is there's not a lot of heart. There's not a lot to draw you in emotionally to the story. It is very much so a, a special effects display and more of a thought piece about like the nature of computing for sure. Totally agree with that. Um, but, uh, you know, still it has this total cult mystique about it. And, I mean, it does inspire so many people in the film industry. John Lasseter, head of Pixar, has literally said, without Tron, there would be no Toy Story. Um, you know, that, I mean, tons of people later came out to say, big, big deal directors totally came out to say, you know, hey, this is, you know, this is what inspired me to get in a film, or this is what inspired me about the future of CGI. I mean, it is so pivotal for sure. So I get it. Totally easy to criticize for certain uh, points, touchstones about it, but like its legacy, uh, yeah. see what I did there, is undeniable. A little bit sure. about the arcade game. Uh, it was a very rushed product by arcade legend Bally Midway, who took on the project after Disney approached them. Um, it has four mini games, a little uh, light cycle kind of snake versus snake thing where you got to get the, uh, the opponent characters to crash into your trail or other walls. A little uh, disc uh, uh, tank fighty thing, a little uh, end thing where you fight MCP, and then it just reboots. I will say that the arcade game was a massive success, selling over 10,000 cabinets by the end of 1983. It's super cool. No, like, hip barcade can have it, can can not have it in Hold their Hold in. The arcade stock. game made more money than the movie. <laughs> <laughs> of course it did. I mean, it is neat. It's got that really cool, uh, what do you even call that, flight stick? It's got the flight stick. Thing. It's got the uh, scroll wheel, the jog dial, whatever you want to call yeah. it. And the whole thing is backlit, so it shines and glows like nothing else in the arcade. It's kind it's of a weird blips. analogy the for blips. the movie. Yeah, yeah, totally, for sure. It's really it's really neat, and the fact that it's like four mini games is just very bizarre for arcade games at the time, and just it just works. I don't know. It's just it's a perfect like retro thing, and uh, so yeah, that also became a bit of a cult hit. Well, uh, wouldn't you know it, years and years later, another film would uh, come around to continue the story. Uh, future president of Walt Disney Studios, Sean Bailey, actually saw the original Tron in the movie theater with his father, who was a pioneer of biochemical engineering, and his father's friend, and wouldn't you know it, his father's friend was Steven Lisberger. Hey! And so Sean Bailey is like, with the director, he's so blown away by this movie. I love these types of stories, that later on in life, he's actually able to get this sequel going, Tron Legacy. 
Bailey pulled in the screenwriting team of Adam Horowitz and Edward Kitsis. Um, they wrote a bunch of episodes of Lost. They're a screenwriting duo. They're also both huge fans of the original film. I mean, one of the cool things about this, and you can feel it in the movie itself, a lot of the people who worked on this movie were clearly huge fans of of this movie from when they were younger. Not not only the um, the future, the president of Walt Disney Studios, the screenwriters, and Daft Punk themselves. I mean, Daft Punk has said that this was such a massive influence on their sound, like the soundtrack of Tron, the look of Tron. Like, and and, and of course, they end up getting to take the helm on the score as well. Um, there were even folks over at Pixar who stepped in and helped rework the script as well. Uh, just uh, actually ended up working out. Lot on, well, it makes sense, actually, if you think about Pixar, a lot on the father-son dynamic mm-hmm. of the film. Uh, the director is Joseph Kaczynski, and it's kind of interesting. Again, the DNA is really fascinating here. Lisberger, big animator, fascinated with computers, brought it all together, but not really like a direct, you know, it's, that was his director directorial debut, mm-hmm. and it was he was kind of bringing just pure animation fever to the to this thing. Joseph Kaczynski, also directorial debut, he was chosen partly due to his background as a graduate from Columbia University's architecture school. So he has this huge design background, which is ideal for building this completely alternate world. Lisberger came out and said he was thrilled to just have the Obi-Wan role <laughs> on this project, the, the Yoda role that he could just kind of help the younger generation take the reins, just be there for guidance. He was like, I don't have the stamina for this kind of thing anymore. This is, uh, the, I'm leaving it to the kids. And Kaczynski set out to make a very real feeling fictional universe. So he, quote, wanted the materials to be real materials, glass concrete steel so it has this kind of visceral quality and i also this is really cool so if you think about it you're like well so much has happened in the world of computing since tron why is this like this kind of upresed version of what that was as opposed to like influenced by everything you know from the internet to simulations these days to video games these days well the idea was that this is this like closed uh, server that that instead of being influenced by everything else happening around it, it's closed off from that, and it's just evolving. Mm-hmm. So that's why we get this really cool, like more like newer feeling version of it. But it's not like connected to necessarily what's going on with you know the evolution of technology since then. In fact, there's a really fun scene where. Jeff Bridges' character, uh, Flynn's son, is explaining to him like Wi-Fi and shit because, um, you know, spoiler alert, it's a lot to do with Flynn being left in the program and his son coming to find him. <sighs> what? That was cool. I, the Tron Legacy also is kind of like I that was cool. I liked it. You like Daft Punk. It. You like Daft Punk. I do like Daft Punk. That, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, Eva, Olivia Wilde's character is like the right, last I'm of the isometric algorithm. I'm mailing you some. I'm mailing you some vapes from California. I think you're desperately in need of, of a different. It's bio digital jazz, man. We're gonna cure yeah, all dude. the healing and like okay. you don't understand. There's little computer people in this computer, but then there's other computer people that emerged organically. Imagine if we put the computer people in a USB drive and you stick That's the USB drive up your butthole, and now you don't have cancer anymore. I'm sending you. Two, I'm gonna give you two different types of vapes, okay? And I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna label it one and two. You're gonna do the first one right at the beginning Uh and then about 45 minutes in 
I mean, you're going to switch to the second one, okay? And literally, I want you to suck on it like a straw at, you know, from a, a Slurpee at there 7-Eleven. There is you're not gonna... enough vape in the entire world for to make <laughs> Michael Sheen's character make any fucking sense in this movie. <laughs> I thought it looked great. I thought it, I thought it felt really cool. I, I just loved what they did with the action sequences, with the frisbee toss, with the motorcycle. Tell you what, Holden, game. I'll take a shot like, to make it updated and new. Yeah, I'll take a shot every single time. Uh, Sam, the Sam Flynn son character, says the most inane one liner, like "Ugh, that sure was something," or "Time for a swim, bozo," and I'll die. I'll fucking die. I will say, I think more than you know, you you may be right with all that stuff. I think more for me just on that on a awesome OLED 4K screen with the with solid well, sound. Well, now you're bar. just stunting on me with your cool TV. Yeah. Some of us still have a TCL, all right? Ooh, oh my god, no vape in the world will make that <laughs> anything on that look good. No, I don't know. I just I really loved the crisp look of it, the the feel of it. I thought the actors were great. You know, I think I think Jeff Bridges is great. Actually, the young Jeff Bridges look was some of the better de aging tech I've seen. No, in that shut up, Holden. I thought it was all right. Are you I kidding it was okay. me? That fucking googly eyed mannequin man. You were like, that no. looks good. That's one of the shittiest de aging. Okay, it was revolutionary need- for the time. You what? You look at the. You need a vapor. You look at that friend. opening are- scene. <laughs> Where they like kind of they're kind of tasteful about okay. it because he's kind yeah. of like they put him in shadow. He's not facing the camera, and you're like, okay, okay, that's because in the digital world you can forgive if the de aging looks a little wonky because he's like a simulation guy. He's Clue. He's a robot. Jake man. Young at AOL.com forward slash no. hotmail dot gov. Send your emails away, ladies and gentlemen. The real shit. The real <laughs> shit. The thing that if you take anything away from this episode. Before you even like rewatch the original Tron, go on Disney Plus right now and watch Tron Uprising. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tron Uprising was it's a cool. 3D animated uh, television series done by the uh, original writing team that did the original screenplay. Pr- uh, pr- I assume with way less Disney interference because it is beautiful, stylistic. The characters have this incredible kind of, uh, I'm going to say Aeon Flux style lankiness about him. The uh, universe of the grid is realized in ways that the movie never even attempts to explain or flesh out. And it has this, it's kind of, it fills in the gaps between the first Tron and Tron Legacy. They bring back uh, Bruce Brock, Bruce Brock, Bruce Brock. They, let me just say this very easy sentence. They bring back (laughs) Bruce uh, Boxleitner. Wow, it's very hard. They bring back Bruce Boxleitner <laughs> as Tron, and everything that Tron was in those original like test films finally gets realized because he's older and he's grizzled. He's kind of like uh, old Bruce Wayne in Batman Beyond, and he's mentoring Elijah Wood's character Beck as they fight against this like new uh, Jeff Bridges totalitarian regime. The action sequences are phenomenal. Some of the most beautiful, well-choreographed set pieces I've ever seen in a television show. The characters are compelling. The plot is really good. I am blown away from all of my complaints about everything Tron could have been. Tron Uprising completely nails it. It got Emmy Awards. It got praise. It got Annie Awards. It was truly something remarkable, but it was left to languish on Disney XD Disney immediately, once Legacy came and went in theaters and wasn't the big 
super new franchise it wanted to be. They just wrapped it all up as quickly as possible. It is a tragedy. It the This is some of the highest quality Televi- animated television I've ever witnessed. If you enjoy stuff like Batman, the animated series, if you enjoy stuff like um, anime, it fucking delivers. And if enough of you, if all 20,000 <laughs> of you listening right now go on Disney Plus and start watching it, maybe, just maybe, someone at Disney will look at those numbers and go, Oh, that's weird. And not do anything about it. So Jake's that guy at the party. So if you want to hang out on the back porch with me, we're going to have a blast. Okay, I got it. I got something for everybody back there, if you know what I mean. Or you can hang out weirdly. For some reason, he's just standing right next to the bathroom the whole time. And you can hear the diatribes about Tron Legacy. You choose, listener. You choose. Reginald Vell Johnson's in it. All right. I'm just going to say Reginald (laughs) Vell Johnson's in it. And he's amazing. Why does he ever move away from the bathroom? Like, what's by the bathroom? <laughs> Anyways, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us for our Tron episode. I had a blast both researching this and doing this episode. I needed a good belly laugh. Um, thank you guys for your support. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. At the $5 layer, we do weekly episodes for just $5 a month. Bonus, bonus. For $15 a month, we've got the Discord Sunday study session every Sunday. Join our private Discord while we talk about, hey, this last week we watched the movie Tron. Uh, We'll always cover whatever we're covering that week. And at the $25 layer, we do a shout-out. And this shout-out this week comes from Matthew. Matthew had this to say. Um, And yes, he specifically wanted me to say the full name out loud, his brother. Justin William Stockman, would you kindly fucking suck yourself, like Kirby, <laughs> <laughs> to make an infinite black hole loop of self-inflicted debauchery? Also, can I get a ho, 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 Matthew? Thank you so much for uh, for that. Uh, I, I needed that laugh as well. And thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to get a shout out uh, at the end of an episode, just, uh, hey, sign up for that layer and you can do all the things that I just offered. Uh, there on the patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Check me out on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash holdenators. Ho, I do streams Monday, Tuesday, and Friday, and it's always a banana time. Jake? Uh, follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung, and hey, I stream, I'm a VTuber now. That's right. I'm a virtual tuber. Go to youtube.com slash puppetjared. Thursdays is the cartoon dumpster, a evening perusal of the most abandoned, misbegotten, misunderstood, forgotten animated series of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It's a good hang. If you like this program, I think you'll enjoy the cartoon dumpster. YouTube.com slash puppet and twitch.tv slash There you go. There you have it. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. 
the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.